there are going to be great days. There are going to be bad days, but you're going to get up and you're going to go put your pants on without me telling to go do it and, and put socks on and put your shirt on and go do your job. And when it gets tough, because it always does, if you run from that, I don't think you have grit. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins. And I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now, on to this episode. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jubin. Thanks for having me. I like to get these things kicked off by reading my guests' profiles back to them. So if you hear previous episodes, you'll know that I'm certainly not a historian, but I will do my best and then please fill in the gaps or blanks on anything that I missed. Fair? Sounds good. Okay. So you got a BA from the University of Delaware. You went on to be a recruiter. You spent nine months doing that. That was in 97. You went to Franklin Templeton, spent a year there. Then you went to ad sales at Smartage for a year. Then you went to Covalent Technologies and you did that for about two years. Then you were in the Bay Area, I presume, at Informatica for a year and a half. And then you had a pretty significant stint at EMC and you did that for eight years. You were an account manager for four of those years selling in San Francisco. And the next four years, you were a district sales manager. Looks like that was your first kind of management gig. So you did that for four years, managed some 150, 200 accounts in Northern California, virtualizing every account uh, in the Bay Area. And then you went to Avexa. You did a year and a half at Avexa as the VP of the Western region, which was an identity and access management company. And Avexa was actually acquired by EMC while you were there. I'd love to hear, is that why you left or what happened there? Then you joined, at the time, a tiny company called Snowflake. When I say tiny, there were 16 employees, or I should say 15. You were number 16, if I'm not mistaken. That was in 2013. And today, you are the CRO of Snowflake. For those who don't know, which I'm sure most do, but for those that don't, it is... I mean, I don't even know if there's superlatives that are big enough or grandiose enough for me to cover this thing, but largest software IPO in US history to date. First IPO that by Warren Buffett and Berkshire has participated in over like 50 years. Market cap's over $100 billion. Total funding of $1.4 billion. Really interesting foundational story from the venture perspective that I'd love for you to share if that's okay. Sequoia, Redpoint, Salesforce Ventures, Sutter Hill, Iconic, et cetera, et cetera. And you finished, I think it was last year at about 300 million of revenue, 265, I think it was the specific number. And you were at 3,117 customers as of July 31st, 2021, up from 1547. So doubling that number in about a year. I'll pause there. What did I screw up? Nothing. You did a great job. Yeah. <laughs> and I was most impressed that you actually could say the name Avexa. 90% of the people, including myself half the time, called it Avesca. So thanks for doing that. <laughs> cool. So the way that I want to frame up this conversation, if it's okay with you, is in a couple of ways. The first is I want to talk about Snowflake a lot. And I want to talk about Snowflake through the lens of two different timeframes. The first I want to call the early days. And this is kind of the rise. Okay. And then the second is kind of the growth stage. And then the last topic that I thought might be interesting for the audience to hear is failure. And that might seem really odd to talk about with a company that probably has not failed a whole hell of a lot, or I should say is known as an execution machine all the way through. But I actually think you're the perfect guest to maybe touch on some failures, hardships, challenges, and the way that you've overcome them along this kind of insane ride. So if it's okay with you, that's kind of how I want to tackle today. Yeah, I look forward to it. Cool. Okay. Avexa, before we dive into Snowflake, what happened? You were there and then your old employer came back and knocking and you said, screw this, I'm not going back to EMC. What happened? Yeah, no, I mean, look, I made a conscious decision. And I think just from a career guidance perspective, I didn't, when I was at EMC, I came to this realization I didn't want my boss's job. And, you know, I'm a pretty ambitious guy. So I was like, you know, I got to leave. And so I started opening up my eyes and I also felt like storage at the time, I was selling data storage for eight years, was a commodity. And I felt like the cloud was coming. We were seeing that certainly in the Bay Area. 
So Avexa was interesting because it was in the security space. I thought I could you know, be value-added in selling and, and improving my sales skills. And so it's funny, when I left, the guy who ran my division flew out from Boston from EMC, tried to convince me that I was making such a stupid decision. And then the executive at RSA, which was EMC's security division, got on the phone with me and said, we looked at that company, Avexa, and that's a piece of crap company. And you're going nowhere in that company. And I said, I appreciate your advice. Thank you so much. And yeah, a year later, we get acquired. So literally almost exactly a year. I remember I was down right at the LA airport with my boss. And he said, look, I got something to tell you. AMC's buying us. And I just, my heart sank. I was like, (laughs) no. So I was in this situation where I was going back to my old employer. And I was an overlay within an overlay organization. RSA was the overlay organization. And I just, I wanted out. And that's when I picked my head up and started figuring out what was next for me. You mentioned you didn't want your boss's job. Why not? I mean, you also said in the same breath that you're really ambitious, you know, and there is obviously something very linear to be said for getting your boss's job and taking on that quota and that responsibility and that team. Why don't you want it? You know, I'm a type of kind of a realist salesperson and I I need to be passionate about what I sell. I'm a bad liar. And so if I don't have passion behind what I'm selling, whether that's to the customer or to people that are going to come work for me, you can tell, you can read me pretty well. And so I couldn't, in my right mind, be excited about the territory that my boss had, the selling the market opportunity to future employees of the company. I just wasn't into it. And I felt like I was selling used cars with data storage. It just wasn't my thing. And I, EMC missed the boat and you could see it with the cloud. And I was like, man, I, I want to do something that's more relevant. And so it was a combination of, I wasn't excited about the company. I wasn't excited about the opportunity. And I couldn't, in a convincing way, sell people on joining EMC. And I'm like, that's it. I'm out. I've lost my passion. Fair enough. I'm going to ask you another question that I wasn't expecting to ask. So feel free to answer or feel free to punt. I also come from a larger but longer lineage of people that were in the NetApp and EMC school. And there is a reputation, and I actually believe in it, which is that it's a hard-ass group of folks, but they are very good fundamentally. Their foundation is very good. What I mean by that is that your blocking and tackling is exceptional. Do you agree with that? Is that fair? And do you think your style today tries to be kind of a balance of both of those things, right? Holding people accountable, but also catering to a new generation of of folks that didn't grow up in that camp. 100%. I worked for the same guy at EMC for eight years. And I'm from Boston and I I quote this all the time is, you know, I'm a huge Patriots fan, huge Bill Belichick fan says, you know, do your job and all this other stuff. And my boss, you know, at EMC was a hard ass and he was unrelenting for eight years. Like he would treat me the same way on day one that he did on my last day of employment. It was just, you must do these things. Because I was raised by him on the fundamentals of sales, I I really do credit him for teaching me a lot of fundamentals. You know, I don't want to raise my kids, if that makes sense, the same way. Mm -hmm. I like the accountability thing and that's super important to me. But I, there's elements of that that I just despised. And as you kind of remove yourself, it's like getting out of a relationship. Well, all of a sudden you're like, wow, there was some good there, but man, there was a lot of bad. And I didn't want to continue on the bad. And I think that's something that you kind of take the good and the bad and try to learn from that and learn from your experiences. Yeah. No, thank you. Appreciate that. Okay. Let's get to it. Because I promise you we are going to run out of time and I'm going to be kicking myself. Snowflake. I've been so excited to talk to you about this freaking company. It's all I hear about these days. So it'll be good to hear about it from the horse's mouth. A couple of stats that I want to throw out here that are pretty impressive to frame up this conversation. And then I want to go way back to, okay, here we are today, but like this is not where we were seven years ago. Net retention in 2019 was 180%. In 2020 was 169%. For the audience who's listening that doesn't know what that means, Basically, if you close a customer for $100,000, that next year, assumingly everyone just does their job and doesn't really have to do much else, the product will sell itself 
70 more percent. So you'll be at 170K with that customer going into the next year, not really doing a lot except for enabling the customer to solve their business challenges and then using the consumption model of Snowflake. That's crazy. That must be pretty cool. The other is seven of the Fortune 10 are your customers. What I found interesting was that that was 4% of your revenue. Not very much, surprisingly, in my mind. In FY20, Capital One was 11%, and this is all public. Capital One was 11% of your revenue, down 17% from 2019. And I come from the public cloud world. I remember the days when it was just Capital One and a few other companies that were actually using the public cloud. So assumingly, that's why they were such a big customer because all their data lived in the public cloud. And then they had to use Snowflake on top of that. And then 146 of the Fortune 500 are on Snowflake. 26% of your revenue is driven by that, which is bigger than I thought. Insane, right? Like this company is going to the moon. It is the talk of the town. You were there as employee 16. I've heard you talk about this before. So I want to take dinks and dunks of the sound bites that I've heard you say and just double click on some of that. And then I have my own sets of questions. You mentioned that there are 16 employees, Chris and 15 engineers, essentially. Can you talk about the foundation of Snowflake out of Sutter Hill? I think it's a really unique origin story. And then let's get to how did you find out about it? Yeah, so kind of ties into both, how I found out about it and the origin of Snowflake. So Mike Spizer from Sutter Hill Ventures, they have a really unique model in the venture capital world where really they want to start companies. Their partners want to be founders of companies effectively. And that's what I would consider Mike a founder of Snowflake. So Mike had just come off the heels of building a super successful company in pure storage and who's disrupted the storage space. And he thought it would be a great idea to go out and build a flash database. And so he decided what he does is he goes out and talks to all these researchers and they they have some great ideas. And then he went out and he actually interviewed a hundred of the best PhDs and databases in the world. And he pitched them on this idea of a flash database. And 99 of them said, that's a great idea. And one of them, this guy, Benoit Dageville from Oracle, said, that's cute. And as Mike likes to say it, cute in French is really like, not that interesting. And so he kind of, as you like to say, double clicked, he double clicked on that and said, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, that's not that interesting to me. And it's really not that big of a market. But let me tell you what is interesting is that if you look at the cloud, the cloud has a theoretical unlimited amount of CPU and it's super elastic. And analytics requires a truckload of CPU. So I want to build a database, you know, or I think I can build a database to go take advantage of the cloud and that unlimited CPU availability, you know, to do analytics. And so they kind of went back and forth on that a little bit. And then he said, great. Mike said, I'll give you a million dollars, but who's your co-founder? And he brought his other French friend, Thierry, who was running the parallel execution arm at Oracle, and they started Snowflake. So Mike has this incredible thing about thinking about big ideas, talking it out, and then finding people that can go build that. And so as Benoit says, as Benoit was out interviewing for a job, he wanted to leave Oracle. He didn't like the leadership and, and he was kind of done being there after being there something like 15 years. He ended up being a founder in Snowflake just because he found Mike. Mike liked him and they kind of existed together. How I found Snowflake was that Mike was, because he was the founder, the same thing, he did the exact same model he did with Pure Storage with Snowflake. Because he was the founder at Pure, I knew a lot of those guys from, because I was from EMC. And one guy in particular used to work for me who was over at Pure and he said, hey, how's it going at Avexa? This was when Avexa got acquired. And I'm like, well, not so good. I'm back at EMC. And so I went and sat down with Mike. And to say Mike is an absolute unbelievable recruiter is an understatement because he sold just this concept and idea. He convinced me. In fact, people curse me who followed in my footsteps in other companies that Mike founded because I took a 50% pay cut when I joined Snowflake from where I was in the market to take more equity and start early, right? Um, and and so I did that because I, I really believed in Mike and I believed in, in Benoit and Thierry. It's a great story. Okay, so when you joined, by the way, Mike was a board member of the first startup that I worked at and I never had the opportunity to meet him because I was way too low on the totem pole, but I had heard nothing but incredible things. And so 
that seems to be repeated throughout the Valley. When you joined, give me a sense of where was the business at? Was there a business? Where were things? They had insinuated that Netflix was trying out Snowflake, which was not really true. (laughs) And uh, so I got there and they really hadn't had anyone even external to Snowflake or Sutter Hill log into Snowflake. So you go to our website and it just said coming soon. I was the director of sales, not the chief revenue officer or VP of sales when I took the job. And it was weird, man, because you get there and you're trying to find people to just try the product to make sure that you actually have something. And so I remember the very first external person ever to try it. I won't name them because we made a little bit of fun of them. You know, the engineers are watching him. They could see him type SQL. And these are all PhDs, you know, in their field. And this guy was like, couldn't spell the English language correctly. So he was... You know, they were like, well, you're typing it wrong. And that's why the query is not working. But they couldn't tell him that they were spying on him. But that was kind of what was happening as he was doing it. So, yeah, it was very surreal. I mean, you're going there and you're basically selling a concept. You have no product. And that's really what I was doing is selling a concept. So another weird question that came to my head. You were already, by most metrics, successful. And what I mean by successful is that like you had mentioned Bill Belichick, like it's very clear that your passion energy comes from leadership, building, scaling teams, watching other people be successful, et cetera. And you had done a lot of that. Like you'd done that at Avexa, you'd done that at EMC as a district sales manager. Like that's a big job. And I guess the question is your pride. When you're making the move to like an early stage, 15 people, no product, individual contributor, no team in sight, no product in sight, and you're doing this missionary sale that's really not a sale. It's just, you know, putting your palms out and really begging people to use it. I don't know. I would be very proud. I would be like, oh man, like there's just a lot of risk with that. And I have this really good cushy thing right here. Did that cross your mind? Yes. I mean, I got, I turned down real good jobs. You know, you know, my name was out there and people were approaching about interesting opportunities. The thing you'll have to, you'd have to know about me is I'm not an egocentric person. I, I actually half jokingly constantly say that I can't believe they haven't fired me yet. And that's mm-hmm. I, in a way, I, I still can't believe I've, I've been at Snowflake for seven years and I work for arguably one of the top CEOs in the Valley and, and he hasn't fired me yet, knock on wood. But um, I think for me, it got to that point that I talked to you about is I worked for a guy that I, I learned the fundamentals on. Mm-hmm. I wasn't ready to go work for another person that I just didn't like because I was going to make money. Money matters. Of course, you're in sales, you know, you're driven again, going back to me as a human, I need to like the people I work for and work with. I need to be passionate about what I'm selling. If you were a venture capitalist or a CEO of a company, you wouldn't want to hire me to sell ice to Eskimos. I'm not the most unbelievable salesperson in the world. If I don't believe in what I'm selling, I can't do that. And so I think I was sold on two things was people. So it was Spicer, it was Benoit and Thierry. Those human beings are amazing people and I could sell them. Okay. So I'm like thinking through, what can I sell? I can sell Mike Spicer. I can sell Benoit and Thierry. Great. And when you say sell them, like sell their story, what is your pitch to the customer? What's the origin story? They're my credibility. And that's what I was doing. So that's one. Number two is, as I started to look at the things that mattered to me, you know, I started to go through it and I'm like, man, the market opportunity for what's represented in Snowflake was huge. I believe that there was a tectonic shift happening of people going from on-premise to the cloud the enterprise data warehousing market at the time in 2013 was five to 7,000 customers, 10 to $12 billion. And Amazon had just launched Amazon Redshift and they had signed up a thousand customers in nine months, none of which were the five to 7,000 enterprise customers that were using the enterprise data warehousing market. So I looked at that and I said, wow, man, there's at least an opportunity. Who knows if this thing's going to work? So I could get passionate about that. And you know, look, as you point out, I had a good run at EMC. Yes, I had an exit, pseudo exit, if you want to call it, with Avexa. But 
look, I could take a couple hits on my resume if that's what it was going to take. And none of the people that came by, there was a job to run the West at App Dynamics, which got bought by Cisco, would have made a lot of money. Wasn't interesting to me. At the time, I was super pumped about it. And I have to thank my wife for, for letting me do that because it's scary in Silicon Valley when you have a mortgage, you have kids and all this other stuff to take risks like that. But I was really excited to do so. I have heard you say, tell me if this is folklore or not, that on your resume at the time, your objective or mission statement was that I want to be a VP of sales. Tell me about that. So when I moved to Silicon Valley, I came from Boston area. I thought everyone made money in financial services. I worked at Franklin Templeton where they have this management training program where you can rotate through departments. My first rotation was in HR and I knew I had zero passion around HR. And then I moved into sales and I said, okay, there's something here. I like sales, but not exactly this, right? And I worked at a dot-com company that blew up in a bad way, blew up. But my boss there was from the enterprise technology world. And he said, look, you got to get into tech, not dot-com garbage, which it was garbage at the time. And so I got into that and I realized, man, I, I dig this. And then I'm, I'm enjoying it. I worked at this company, Covalent, and I survived the kind of dot-com bust. And I liked the VP of sales role. And then I saw people who had great career trajectories into those roles. And I said, you know, that's where I want to take my career. And then I had clarity around that. So when I joined EMC, I knew that I wanted to be a VP of sales. I knew that I wouldn't get that job at EMC. When I sat down in my interview with my boss of eight years at EMC, you know, my objective was to be a VP of sales of a tech company. And that's what's driven every mm. career decision I've made in some way, shape or form. Whether I stay at the employer that I was at at the time, whether I take a different role at that employer, whatever it might be, that was always kind of the top goal of mine. Okay, so let's keep playing this forward, right? So you join this thing, turns out Netflix hasn't even logged into the product before. And you look to your left and right and probably a three weeks in, you have an oh shit moment of what have I actually signed up for. Did you have a quota? I can't imagine you had like a revenue quota at the time. You ostensibly didn't have a boss besides Mike Spicer because it's just a bunch of engineers. How did you think about navigating interim metrics of what does progress mean today versus tomorrow versus next quarter? How do I measure that? And no one's holding me accountable. So what the hell does that mean? Yeah, so I walked in and I said, I think probably within like day two, I was like, holy shit, what did I do, right? So <laughs> I was in this brick building with the engineers and I go into a conference room and they could all hear through the walls what I said. And they'd make fun of it because 90% of it was wrong. <laughs> and so I, I would, you know, get in there and I would say, okay, what did I do? Oh my God. And then you get over that and you say, well, I've got to do something. And as a sales manager, what did I hold my team accountable for? Well, I held my team accountable for going on in my last job. It was like any sales rep that worked for me, they had to go on eight face-to-face -face meetings a week. Okay. That was it. And you're looking for two to three net new business meetings. So I'm like, guess what? That's what I'm going to hold myself accountable to. And to kind of add pressure to myself, I would then send an email out to the entire company and the board. There was two external members of the board at the time, Spicer and, and John McMahon. And I would say, here's what's happening. And so every week, whether I had one meeting or 15 meetings, I'd say, here's who I met with. And I met with these 10 customers. This is the conversation I had. This is what they're looking for. And that was incredibly helpful. And it was neat because that allowed me to establish this relationship with these really super smart people and these PhDs and databases who I don't normally on a social perspective interact with because they're in different stratospheres and brain power than I am. And so I think they read each piece of feedback. And I remember even like going back to like when I first gave my first forecast meeting, because to your point, Spicer was in the office one day a week. I'm like, well, maybe I'm going to give the founders a forecast review. And so I remember being in, in a conference room, giving Benoit and Terry a forecast review. And it was like their eyes were rolling back in their head. They're like, they didn't care. And they're like, just tell me what problems are we solving? I want to learn that. 
So then that's what I really focused on is, okay, these guys, all they really care about is making an awesome product that makes customers super happy and solving problems. They had the ideas, but they wanted to hear about that. And so one of the founding engineers, Abdul, he jokingly used to call me the shadow CTO because there was never a moment, of course, that I dictated anything from a product direction perspective, but I would influence that. And so the way that I would influence it is getting Benoit and Thierry on the phone with the customer, make sure I qualified it, make sure it had a real opportunity that if we did these things, a customer would buy. And that was, I had to hold myself accountable to that. But then, then they would build it and they took on endeavors that really took the entire engineering team seven, eight months in some examples where they kind of pivoted the company based on customer feedback. So mm. that was my job and, and that's how I did it. But holding myself accountable in the public embarrassment of sending out emails was how I set my goals. And so then when people came to Snowflake, salespeople, I'm like, I did this, you can do this. And mm-hmm. it was pretty black and white. If you yep. didn't do it, you weren't going to be successful. You mentioned communicating with these PhDs that you normally wouldn't communicate with. The way that I thought about it when you said it was almost like the customers communicating with these PhDs, right? And what I mean by that is that you're basically an intermediary between engineers and a customer. And you got to go figure out what are the customer challenges? How can I succinctly communicate that to the engineers or figure out a way for them to hear it from the horse's mouth? Is that a fair characterization of the early days? Yeah. To some extent, that still happens today. I mean, I think, look, my job is, whether it's my CEO, my CFO, our founders, our head of product, I need to be protective of their time and a steward of their time. And I need to make sure I put them in a place to be successful. But that's what sales is, is just making sure that you you put the right people together to make the magic happen. And I think that's really it from my standpoint. I've always just said, Again, when I go back to what I was selling, I was selling Benoit and Terry and Mike, man, their entire engineering team was amazing and they would all get behind me and support me. So I felt like just this, felt like a Superman going into customers because I'm like, man, I have this all-star team behind me. And that's what you do is you just get them behind you, get them rallied behind the opportunity that you're trying to solve. And if they're interested in it, they can be very interested. They got your back. And that's an amazing feeling to have. Yeah. And I think the communication is the way that when an engineer or an engineering team building a product can hear the customer's voice, that's how you build a customer-centric organization. Because at some point you need to flip the switch from, you know, rolling their eyes in the back of their head when they're hearing about features and functionalities to here's the customer problems that we're solving. And then the next step is, okay, here's what it's going to take to buy and here's the timing, right? And I think as you do the communication, the reason the team rallied behind you is because they were feeling like this was from a product company to an organization solving customer challenges. I have another story for you. Yesterday, one of our early stage companies closed their first deal and it was a director of sales. He called me, first sales rep, just like you. And I said, how big was the deal? And he said, 12K. And I lost it. I was so excited, right? And I said, look, what's the biggest deal you've closed? And he said, you know, million dollars plus. And I said, what feels better? This 12K deal or that million plus dollar deal that you closed that box? And he said, this one, 10 times out of 10. And I said, remember this feeling, send an email out to the entire team, celebrate it with the team, because this will always feel better than any other deal that you ever have the opportunity to close because it's validation. And it's the first dot that you could start to draw on the graph of, holy crap, someone wants our product. We built something that the market wants. So I said, hey, Chris has a similar story. This is how it worked. And at some point, flip the switch and he got it. What was the first deal? How long did it take for you to get there? And how big was it? And does that story resonate with you? Yeah. I mean, people think that it was all roses and that I'm the luckiest salesperson in the planet that I picked Snowflake. And there were a lot of people that did not want the job at Snowflake. Just as a side note, the kind of the funniest thing that's happened most recently is I've gotten responses to LinkedIn emails that I've sent as recruiting emails to people four years ago that said, I wish I had the guts to respond to you four years ago. And that's almost like great validation for me. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool, man. I mean, thanks for uh, acknowledging that. So yeah, Accordant Media was our very first customer, still a customer. Balaji Rao holds a 
big part of my heart. And he was the VP of engineering because he taught me so much. He is a man of few words. He doesn't say a lot. And I was grasping at straws. So getting people to respond to me and saying, hey, Chris, what's out there? What are you building? Like, I remember reaching out to a Fortune 50 customer and them kind of blowing me off saying, well, when are you going to support private cloud? I'd go to Benoit and Terry say, when are we going to support private cloud? And they'd say, never. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> so, um, so I had to start figuring it out. And so Benoit explained to me, oh, Chris, we're a service. You have no idea all the things we can tell about you know, the customer's usage. Billing will be amazing. And so I'm selling this idea. Not only are we selling a new product, but we're selling consumption-based model. Consumption-based model that I actually created the pricing for it for our first two customers and only our first two customers because it was a disaster. But what ends up happening is I remember closing the deal right as Bob Muglia was starting. Bob was like, thank God for Bob because he came in and changed all our pricing models because we would have been screwed if it would have been relying on, on me. But I think getting them to sign up, closing them, and I think we agreed to like a 20K deal. And it took us another probably four months before we could actually send out our first invoice because we were usage-based and we didn't actually have a, a way to actually know exactly how much usage they were using. So they probably used it for nine months in production as an alpha product with us, no ability to build them, but them and White Ops were our first two customers. And it was more about them signing up as being a customer. And I'm so thankful to both of them. So both great, amazing companies and great people. And yeah, I remember that. And it's, you know, look, this past year, I did a, we did a $100 million deal. Those first two deals were way cooler. Did you send a win wire to the team, to the engineering team and to everybody else? Yeah, of course. I mean, every deal was a win. <laughs> That's the thing is we created this kind of deal updates thing, which we actually, as a public company, sadly, we had to stop. So we went from having deal updates go out to the entire company. If you logged into this deal updates email alias, you'd see all the deal updates. It would be on Slack, wherever. But as a public company, we can't do that. People are still kind of bummed about that because they're like, how are we doing in the quarter? And the engineers like to see, oh, this person, all this work I did over here for this customer paid off on this big deal. They used to see all that. And that's something that we've had to separate out, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah. Okay. How many customers did it take before you were like, I need some help? At what point was it like, I need a BDR? or I need an SE, or I need a couple AEs coming and working with me. And at what point did you feel like you needed an enabler for you, which might be an SE or a BDR, to help take your time into closing? And then at what point did you feel the confidence that you had enough customers and repeatability, i.e. you've paved the yellow brick road, to feel good about recruiting the requisite talent to get a couple more AEs to join the band with you? Does that make sense? So I joined in November, 2013. It was a technical product, technical sale. There was a, a guy who was technical at the company who supported me in, effectively as an SE until I hired my first SE, who didn't start until I think February of 2014. But in the meantime, I had to generate all this demand. And so I would call myself a spam master. I would have to manually build my own lists. And so our office manager, Nancy, she went to, was taking night classes and she knew this girl who was taking night classes with her, who was college age, who said, Hey, she's looking for some three days a week type job. I'm like, come on in and help me build lists. So I would spam, you know, 2000 people a week with the help of a list of just building lists. And what we would do is go to job boards, like indeed.com and say, mm -hmm. who's posting AWS job postings or Redshift job postings. And we'd spam those people. As I said, my goals every week were to have eight meetings a week. And as I started getting on a regular basis, eight to 10 meetings a week, then you had to have follow-up on those meetings. And then I started to kind of say, well, I, I need help. And so I think in March of 2014, I hired my first two BDRs, ISRs, and they did a lot of the kind of lead generation. And that was what, nine months in, a year in? No, I started in November. Yeah, so November to March. Say, so, yeah, okay, five months. Yeah, and then from there, I think it was... Between May and, and July, we brought in three field people. One. Seven, eight months later. Two guys who had worked for me previously and one guy out in the East because I ended up getting on a plane a lot going out to New York and Boston. Yeah. So I needed someone out there. And that was it. And that was kind of the core field org. 
for the better half of 2014, but we started to see that we were hitting it in this ad tech and online gaming space. And at least we could make money selling to them. And so we said, all right, well, let's start building a sales force around these three leaders. And I let those three leaders start to hire reps underneath them. And that was that. That makes sense. And then help orient me. What month was the first customer closed? It was June of 2014. Okay. So right around the time when you brought in your first AE. Okay. Next question. Those reps that you brought in, I've always found it a really tricky thing at the early stage. And it seems unique to find someone who you can rely on to carry a bag, live in Boston or the East Coast, go close a bunch of deals, do the same thing that you did, put your pride down, take a pay cut. And then also they grow into the future leaders of those coasts or wherever they are. In your mind, when you hired them, did you see them as the leaders or did you see them as reinforcements right now that hopefully could grow into something more? It's super hard. And now seven years in, I hired them saying, look, you guys will be frontline managers. Just like I was saying, dude, in all transparency, they're going to hire a new head of sales. They're going to hire, you know, eventually over me. Right. So I never envisioned that I would actually have the responsibility I have today. And those guys, so there was three of them, two of them are still with Snowflake and they are in different jobs. They both at one point ran the West Coast and the East Coast. And the hardest part of being in this kind of hyperscale mode is you hire people maybe like one or two years ahead where you think that they are thinking they can grow into it. And some people do. But then when you're growing faster than that, when that two years squishes into like four months, then all of a sudden it's just the rate of change is kind of insane. And so we did that. And historically speaking, I really do believe in promotion from within. And in a lot of the ways that that has happened has been the best sales reps try to coach them into, into managers because from an early stage company's perspective, you spend a lot of time developing your sellers. Your sellers need to know how to sell the product. And if you have no enablement, I mean, we have no budget for an enablement organization. I remember teaching a BDR who had just come out of University of Colorado Boulder, who's a field rep for us now, on here's a computer. Here's how the computer plugs into the internet, right? I mean, like I was going to that level of detail with people. And you need your sales leaders to be super sales reps for a period of time. The most important people, I think, in the organization are the frontline sales leaders. SEs are really important as well. So you bring on reinforcements and I'm asking these really specific questions because God damn it, it's insane where you are today. And I think people lose perspective to your point of these gritty days in the early days, how hard this time is. And I think why I'm particularly keen on talking to you, CRO of Snowflake, $100 billion market cap company, is that you were employee number 16 begging for your first deal that was 20K, and nobody has that perspective. And I think it's really important for the audience to hear that because, again, to your point, everyone just thinks that you're the luckiest guy in the world and that it's really good to you know, pick Snowflake. It's just not that way, which is why you don't see many people as employees 16 being the CROs. And I'm going to go into that in the growth stage of this topic. But how long did it take roughly to get to a million of ARR? And I think there's a lagging indicator for Snowflake of probably six months because they have to turn it on and then they have to use the damn thing. And they have to get to the point where you're billing them, right? You recognize that revenue once they're using it, not when they sign up. So that was probably a scary moment as a sales rep, sales leader, convincing the sales team right? They're like, wait a second. So Chris, you're telling me that I'm going to join this company. All right. You have a handful of customers. Congratulations. And there's really no market there. And we're going to take a pay cut to do this. And it's going to take us a lot of scorch the earth mentality to go find our own meetings, close our own deals, really not have any reinforcement. I have a BDR that doesn't even know what the internet is. And now you're telling me that I can close a deal. And in six to nine months, I still might not have a dollar of commission to show for it. Is that fair? Like, that's basically the sales pitch, right? As a public company now, we report on consumption-based revenue. We did not report on consumption-based revenue in early days. For what it's worth, consumption-based revenue is almost a, a lagging indicator. The leading indicator really is what's the bookings? And we report that as a 
to some extent, in remaining performance obligation today. And that this is something that's in our 10 Qs when we file. So our first year of GA started in June of 2015. So we went GA of June of 2015, in the middle of June, and we did three and a half million dollars in, in ACV bookings. So annual contract value. And that was what we rewarded the sales team on. In the first year. In the first year. Then we started doing an ACV growth target and then an ACV renewal target. So, hey, mm-hmm. we, we actually didn't do multi-year deals ever because yep. we couldn't get anyone to commit to multi-year contract yep. with us. Which is why you're measuring it in ACV. And that's how you're assumingly compensating the team. That's right. So it was you had a renewal target and you had a growth target. And it was all based on annual contract value. And that was really it. Then we started getting better at understanding the consumption. I mean, selling consumption is hard. It's like, Jubin, do you know how many minutes, if you've never used a cell phone before, do you know how many minutes every month you're going to talk on the cell phone? You have no idea. And so even if I tell you, hey, my best guess is you're going to call your mom and your your sister and your girlfriend. Great. You're going to use it 100 minutes a month. Great. Let's buy 1,200 minutes. You might consume all that 1,200 minutes in six months. That's what you talk about how our, our net retention rate is through the roof is that's exactly what happened is people started using the heck out of the product because it worked really well. That's what the investors saw too, is once we sold these deals, all of a sudden consumption started spiking. Okay, this product works. And that's the thing that's super awesome is when you're a salesperson, you don't always sell. And I've sold products that don't work so well. This is pretty cool to sell a product that works so well. And that's when you start to say, this is how we started to kind of reward the sales team on Go open a net new deal. So then you start saying, open up what we call a capacity one deal is a net new annual contract. And I would just spiff people on that, reward people on that, focus on capacity one, net new contracts. And I would tell the rep, you at a minimum have to get annually at a minimum four net new contracts, but ideally eight net new contracts a year. And if you do that, you'll make a ton of money here. And that was true. I mean, that's how we manage the team. And Eventually, because the product works so well, customers would just start pouring information into Snowflake, and then you know we would just see huge uplifts in growth. Yeah, that makes sense. And touching on the consumption-based thing, Snowflake lives on top of the public cloud, right? And so it is a data lake built on top of the public cloud. And what that means is that the only way, to my earlier comment, that Snowflake becomes valuable to a customer is when AWS, GCP, Azure, the public cloud resources become valuable. So the reason Capital One was such a big, prolific, and early customer for you was because of how strategic AWS was to their business. And taking that a step further, AWS measures their business in consumption. So AWS is like a utility. You pay for what you use. And so it made a lot of sense, I have to imagine, that something that sits on top of AWS and these public cloud providers also follows the same billing model because it's so unpredictable with the resources underneath what Snowflake sits on that you have to match that billing model. Is that fair? There are companies that were sister companies to us, you know, from a venture capital standpoint, that they didn't follow those models and they ended up having to redo their business models because if your largest customers cost more than your underlying infrastructure, then you're your book. Creek. And so you you need to make sure the economics work and scale as your customers scale. Okay. So you did three and a half million ACV that year. You mentioned there was a renewal and a growth target. What was the growth target for the following year? And what did you end up doing? I think we did a growth target of either 10 or 12, and we did ended up doing 15. Okay. Mike Spicer had this thing. The typical venture capital thing was, I think, triple, triple, double, double. And he's like, triple, triple, triple double, double. And you know, that's basically what we did. Okay. Transitioning into growth stage. And by the way, I'm going through the like incredible rise. And then I want to talk about some of the gritty stuff along the way. Was there a moment? What was the moment I should say where you knew, holy crap. And obviously you didn't know what it's going to be today, but whoa, this is a much bigger opportunity than I thought. If I go back, you know, in the history of Snowflake and say pivotal moments for Snowflake in terms of where you think, okay, we have it. We sold to AdTech, right? And AdTech, this company called Exalate gets bought by Nielsen. And Exalate had migrated their Netiza to Snowflake. And so Nielsen makes Exalate Nielsen Marketing Cloud. And we were 
okay, great. That's Nielsen Marketing Cloud. All of a sudden, they're using Snowflake as the back end. And at the same time, we're doing a proof of concept with, we somehow get into the largest retailer in Portland, Oregon area, and they have a massive Teradata environment that they spend $12 million a year on. And the SVP of data calls the CTO of Nielsen and says, we're trying this company on Snowflake. Are they real? He's like, oh yeah, they're real. And we then did the proof of concept against this $12 million Teradata device. And we jokingly say $500 a Snowflake beat out a 12 million dollar Teradata, which is was the Ferrari in the garage type thing. And so that led to then Capital One, who had told us, no, Amazon didn't want us to win Capital One because they wanted their native product yeah. to win. But they had this on-premise Teradata as well. And Capital One was like, there's no way we're going to get out of the data center without something else. And that's when they tried it out. So it was like kind of three customers, Nielsen, customer I can't say the name of and Capital One that you're just like, we got it. And then that was interesting. And then all of a sudden, those were the early adopters of the cloud, those companies in the enterprise. I remember going to Goldman Sachs and them saying, we've been trying to build this. And Benoit is this super humble guy. And I went go on a sales call at Goldman Sachs where they have all these guys, managing directors making millions of dollars a year in IT. They're like, we've been trying to build this at Goldman. And we can't. And they say, when are you going to support private cloud? And, he, and his words are famous, you know, within Goldman. And he says, you will go to the public cloud ever before we go to the private cloud. And he was right. I mean, three years later, they became a material customer. And I think those things, when you start to see those, that transition from customers who are saying, you must be in the private cloud to all of a sudden them transitioning to the public cloud. And it's not just these ad tech companies. It's the Fortune 10. You're saying, man, we got it. And I still pinch myself because the conversations that I'm having today are insane with the companies that we're having them with. So I still can't believe I'm, I'm in this situation. I want to explore what you just said about what Benoit told the Goldman team. And for those listening, like early stage startups glamorize Wall Street and Goldman Sachs because... You get a beachhead like that and a lot of the dominoes start falling for you. And that's a very credible customer who's really, really intelligent, validating your product for not only you, but for the market. Very few people have the conviction to say no to a Goldman. You know, you're sitting there and a lot of entrepreneurs would say, okay, maybe we should add that to our roadmap because maybe there's something that they know that we don't. I really respect a company and a team and a founding team that can say, no, no, like we know what we're building here. And if you want something else, that's okay. You're just not going to get it from us. Meanwhile, Chris sitting next to Benoit is the sales rep. is like, dude, come on. You're come, like, really? You don't want to, you don't want to build something. Was that conviction always there? Was it really, really clear from the start? Benoit's conviction on what he wanted to build was super important. He had this vision and dollars will come by and those dollars will potentially influence you. We could have had GE distract us by saying, come and build Snowflake so it can support the private cloud. Well, the problem is, and Benoit saw that and said, well, if I support the private cloud, that means I'm going to have multiple versions of Snowflake. And one of the things he hated about Oracle was he'd go to a customer and say, the customer yelling at him and saying, well, your Oracle product sucks. And he's like, well, let me tell you something. You're four versions behind, which we updated you know, two years ago. Right, because they deployed a piece of software. So fundamentally, his issue was, I want to create a service and I want to control, I want to be the control plane of, I'm making the decision that we're upgrading the software. You, Mr. and Mrs. Customer, are not doing that. And that was hard. That's created a lot of problems for me in the sales cycle because we house data. So there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of issues with that. But once you get through them and you delight your customers with an amazing product, it solves a lot of problems. Okay, so you went from three to 15. Did you achieve your goal on your resume of being the VP of sales? What point was that? Was that in that next year? Yeah, so when we went to 15, they, I was allowed to put VP of sales on my title. And then I launched Europe and they're saying, okay, this kid's doing okay. And then the last hurdle was, can I hire ahead of North America, which I did. 
and they said, congratulations, Chris. Because at this point, I'm hiring people who are keenly had more experience than I did and were getting equity packages that were pretty substantial more than I had. And they're like, okay, we're going to promote. And when they did that, they, they kind of treated me as a chief revenue officer and they gave me the appropriate compensation plans for them. That makes sense. And I assume with the title also comes, it's good for recruiting. It makes it a lot easier to recruit. Heck of a lot easier. Yes. Yep. Because all of a yep. sudden people are like, do I really want to come where? Yeah, you have longevity. Like they know that you're going to be their boss. What point, and then I'm going somewhere with this. What point did you get a new CEO? What point did Bob come in? Was he when you were director of sales? Director. Yep. And the point that I'm making, and I will bring it all the way back to the beginning, which is why I really was looking forward to this episode, because it's so rare to have, in your words, a kid that grows into the CRO, right? And usually it's pressures from the board, from other CEOs. You know, you're saying, I can't believe I'm the CRO now. I can't believe I'm still here. I can't believe it either. I mean, it's incredible and a testament to how damn good you are. So I know you wouldn't say that, but I will. Was there pressure? Who protected you? I don't know how else to say it. Was it Spicer? Was it Bob? And again, I'm not trying to make this like a movie script here, but somebody needs to stand up for you and say, this is my guy. When did that happen? How? And what did you have to do to give that person the confidence to put their neck out there and say, this is going to be our VP of sales? You know, he recruited me and he and I have a, a great relationship, and, but he was ready to replace me just for the sheer <laughs> fact that it was time, right? And sorry to interrupt you, but he could tell this thing is going to be giant. And why would I take a risk on an unproven quantity? On the flip side of that, we had lofty goals. I was always given lofty goals and I would always beat those. And so it was the way you take the stick out of my hand is by me missing my number. Then all of a sudden I lose control. So dude, there's a lot of anxiety in me that I'm sitting there saying, I can't miss my friggin' number or I'm going to get my job. I have a three month contract. I always say that I always have a three month contract. Every quarter, the board, the CEO, they reserve the right to fire me if I miss my number. And so that's how I've always operated. And I think Bob saw what I was doing, was like, man, I was very intimate with the entire company. I was part of the culture of the company, whether it was on the engineering side, the, the marketing side, mm -hmm. I was you know, just part of the company. And if they took me out, that would be like open heart surgery. And so they could have done it and they, they did it with Bob. So yeah, I mean, but Bob was my advocate. The other person that was a super huge advocate for me was John McMahon. John has been on our board the whole time since I joined. John is a sales leader legend and was instrumental in helping me keep focus and give Bob the confidence to keep me in my role. And I'm still trying to figure out why Frank has kept me as the head of sales. And Frank is the current CEO. Yeah, Frank Slootman's the current CEO. And John was, I think, the VP of sales or CRO at PTC, right? PTC, is that right? Blade Logic, BMC. Yeah, and uh, he was, you know, Carlos De La Torre, who I had on the show, was under that kind of tutelage, tutelage, however you pronounce it. Anyway, that's really cool. And then, at what point was it CRO? I guess it doesn't really matter, but was it before or after Frank came in? It was before. Before. And then did you have another moment of like, are you kidding me? I'm getting another CEO and now I have to go prove myself again? Yeah, that was last year. So outside of the fact that this year has been trying because of COVID for the whole world, you know, and, and I have to be cognizant of that, what an insane situation this whole has been. But from my career standpoint, the most stressful part of my life career-wise was when Frank came in, the first probably six months of it. You know, I had a boss who, he'd give me a hug, he'd cry in front of me right? That was Bob. And then I had a guy who's, he's on a military operation. He's there to execute and do well, period, full stop. And there's no pleasantries. It's, hey, let's go and do our job. And I've worked for both right now. So I, I knew from my days at EMC, I worked for someone like that. But last year was probably the toughest part of my career ever, because I didn't know where I stood. You know, at any moment, I felt like I could be fired. And that was scary to me. And I also had to do open heart surgery on the sales organization because Frank was right and he was right. I had to reorganize the sales org so that we could go to the next phase of growth. And that was hard too. So I think a lot of that was challenging. Now that I've made it to the other side, well, that was hard. 
you know, it's like make decisions quickly, act in those decisions quickly. It was painful, but I'm glad I did it because it's allowed us to set Snowflake up for success now going forward. Okay, so you passed the sniff test from two pretty legendary CEOs, and this is going to be hard for you to answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What is it in you that you think that they saw that gave them the confidence to say, okay, what are one or two things that you just felt like you did damn well besides hitting the number? Maybe characteristics. I think as you grow in your career, you have more layers of people underneath you. It's hard to find the truth. And what I mean by that is, people manage up to you a lot. And I treat you, Jobin, just the way I would treat a BDR, you know, at Snowflake, just the way that I would treat Frank Slootman or one of our board members. I am who I am and I'm unapologetic about it. So I'm honest and I'm my own worst enemy. I have the fear of failure. And I think Frank, I think on the one hand, likes the anxiety I have of he has someone on the watchtower looking over saying, what's coming over? What's going to kill us? He's thinking about that. And I'm thinking about that. And there's a lot of other people think. And I think that's the way he likes it. And that's how I am as a human being. So I'm always looking at what's the worst thing. And I'm very open and transparent about it. So if I don't like something, I'm going to say, man, I don't like this. thing, Right. And you can tell if I'm lying to you, I'm the worst liar. And so people will read through that and say, hey, dude, something's up what's going on. And so I think that's it is. I think with Bob, he's a very passionate human and he and I would have very passionate conversations. We'd hug it out afterward. And I think that was it is we would make each other better. It's like brothers getting into a fight. Mm-hmm. You punch each other, but afterward you'd hug and you'd be like, okay, let's go and let's go to war. And that's how I am. It's just very open, transparent. And so it's hard for me sometimes to celebrate these great deals and say, oh, we did this $100 million deal. Who cares? What's next, right? I just yep. almost like, what's next, right? Yep, makes sense. Okay, let's go to failure. There is a couple of things that I've heard you say that you ask in interviews. The first question that you've asked is, tell me your life story. The second is, give me the toughest situation you've been in, and it can be personal or professional. Maybe I'll start with, what's your relationship to failure? How do you think about failure? Are you motivated by it? Are you scared by it? Do you run from it? Do you embrace it? Well, failure drives me because I do not want to be a failure. You can read into that. I mean, we can get into a psychotherapy session for sure on my childhood. They say it's better to never have flown first class than fly first class and then have to fly economy. That was my life. I had a very good life. And then there was a massive pivot in my life right about when I was 13 years old, where I all of a sudden had to pay from everything I did or I wouldn't do anything. And so I had to you know, go and bag groceries and all this other stuff. So my whole philosophy has always been, I could sit there and I could feel sorry for myself and say, shit, man, there's some bad things that have happened in my life. Or I can say, let's go and not feel sorry for myself and execute and you know, getting up every day and going and bagging groceries or becoming a bank teller or mowing lawns or you know, washing dishes in a sorority house in college. Like I did all of the above and I've always done that. I would shine your shoes to make sure that my family was fed. That's how I operate and that's it. And so I think that's what drives me is I don't want anyone to take anything away from me. I want to be able to take it away. I want to be able to walk away, not being taken away from me. And I certainly have that fear of it being taken away from me. I thank you for sharing that. And when you say like earlier, like, hey, every quarter, I feel like I'm on a new three-month contract. You think it comes from that? I know that I am being measured right now, and I have an opportunity to execute and perform right now and just not fail. And do you think that paranoia almost feeds from a place of, I will not fail, and if I do, this contract is up? 100%. This is so weird. I keep a journal of failures. And I write down every failure that I have had, professionally mostly. And I look at that every year or so. And I'm also terrified of failure. I love to win, but I despise losing, despise it. The losses in my mind are always seared much more deeply than the wins are. And I write down this journal of failures and I was asking myself kind of like before I wanted to talk to you about this, why do I do that? What's my relationship to failure? I thought it's probably because failure is a very temporary state. And I've always thought of failure as something that happened 
And then how did I respond to that? And I think when I look back on it, I reflect on what it taught me about me in order to overcome that. And I can look back on those failures and say, oh yeah, I'm doing okay right now because failure was ephemeral. And then I got over it and I did something about it. And that gives me strength today. Does that resonate? Do you feel that way? Is that weird? I don't know. No, it's not weird at all. I mean, I, I mean, we're a little bit screwed in the head thinking that way, but I think, <laughs> I think, yeah, man. I mean, I think that's how I, I think about things. I mean, look, I saw the writing on the wall. I looked at Bob Muglia as like a father to me, right? I mean, it was heartbreaking, literally heartbreaking to me to see him taken out of Snowflake. And I kind of go back in my mind of saying, what could I have done differently to make that not happen? And yeah, I mean, that was a big deal. And then there's like little other things along the way. Can you talk about a couple of those scars? Any moments that are shining beacons of cringing inside of things that you were pretty obvious failures for you? And again, in this meteoric rise, I remember there was 10 reasons why Snowflake as a company was supposed to fail. AWS will kill you, Hadoop will kill you, gross margins will kill you, switching costs will kill you, hiring multiple CEOs will kill you, your subscription pricing model will kill you, sales and marketing costs will kill you. There was all these existential moments of snowflake. What about for you? Any moments that you feel like sharing? I think there's organizational things, errors that I've made. I grossly misunderstood the importance of sales operations. That's one. As we scaled, people say it's important. As head of sales, it's the hardest job to fill. And it's probably one of the most important jobs to have is having a, a partner that can help you and also making sure that that partner has the appropriate resources. A lot of times you don't want to fund that. So the other thing is I had someone working for me who managed up to me extremely well. He and I had a tremendous relationship with. He was like my old boss from EMC, two people that I respected. He was extremely tough. But I became disconnected. I said, oh, the numbers look good. Everything's fine. The numbers can lie to you. You have to see through the numbers. You have to actually look in and say, how are things going? Because people will put up with only so much because the company's a rocket ship, because you're part of this. And there are mistakes like that around people that I regret that I kind of check. I don't know if checkout's the right word, but just kind of let that happen. And man, those are material mistakes that I made culturally for the company. And those are things that I'm are cringeworthy to me that I let that happen. And, and you constantly have to do things like, okay, what do you do to avoid that? You try to do skip level meetings. You try to talk to more people. People don't view you as human. I mean, I remember being at sales kickoff this year and someone coming up and saying, oh my God, it's Chris Degnan. I'm like, so what? I'm not some amazing person. Let's have a real conversation. So I think trying to consistently keep it real and understanding everyone in the organization, making time for as many people as you can without driving yourself insane so that you can have a real pulse on what's happening in the company. Dude, thank you. Not every episode. In fact, I can't say any episode has gone this long. It's not by accident. So I really appreciate your time and thank you for being so generous with it. I always conclude these things with the same questions. The first what does the word grit mean to you and how have you or your teams applied it? Grit means to me, there are going to be great days. There are going to be bad days, but you're going to get up and you're going to go put your pants on without me telling to go do it and, and put socks on and put your shirt on and go do your job. And when it gets tough, because it always does, if you run from that, I don't think you have grit. And I think people, again, look at Snowflake and say, Chris Degnan's the luckiest guy on the planet. I certainly feel very lucky, but I got to this place because early times at Snowflake was freaking hard, man. And there were some very, very dark days and working through those dark days and grinding that out is just, to me, that's great. And there's so many things that you see in people that you're so respectful of. So I think that's it. That's great for me. Are you hiring? If so, what's the best way to get a hold of you or someone that might be hiring on your team? Yeah, I mean, we're hiring. <laughs> I'm actually hiring a new uh, head of sales operations right now. I'm not working directly for me. But yeah, the answer is yes. I get a lot of requests for people to, hey, can you give me 15 minutes You know, on LinkedIn? I think that's the most favorite question I get. I think the, the feedback I would say is be more specific. I don't have 15 minutes to give everybody. Is there something like, 
hey, if you see a job that we're hiring for, yeah, we post all our jobs. Send me the link. I'll look you up on LinkedIn. I'll say, yeah, you're the right person. And I'll send you to the hiring manager. I will do that. But you know, I think people say, hey, I just want to pick your brain for 15 minutes. Don't do that. Be more specific. Be very direct in what you're asking me. And those are the things that I would, I would encourage people to do. Chris, thank you so, so much, man. Appreciate it. Jobin, great to meet you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.